0: lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. On today's show, I welcome a tender-hearted friend to the monarch cause. Kylie Bomley, and she's written a book called The Monarch, Saving Our Most Loved Butterfly. Now, I'm going to tell you something that most professionals in the gardening industry already know, and that is that Kylie Bomley is a huge supporter of the monarch cause. She's in the army of citizen scientists working to make sure that monarch habitat is preserved and encouraged, that everyday gardeners like you and me know how to play a role in their protection and conservation. And all of that is good and worthwhile work. But I have to tell you, for me, What makes Kylie's work and book and all of her endeavors to learn more and do more on behalf of monarchs all the more special is her personal story of how she came to enlist in this cause. I think it's a story of kismet, of divine alignment, and it started with a little road trip. I won't ruin this lovely story because Kylie talks all about it in the show today. But I do want to point out that Kylie's mom was with her back when her journey started. And as a sentimental gal myself, I think it makes the whole story extra special because I had the chance to meet Kylie's mom, Louise, at the Garden Bloggers Fling earlier this year. And I have to say that the apple didn't fall far from the tree. As a gardener, I know you understand what I mean when I say you just could not find nicer people than Kylie and her mom, Louise. They are just good people, good gardeners with a love for the natural world. So the more I learned of how fate brought Kylie to a personal calling of sorts to stand up for monarchs, the message and the information in her book just took on a whole deeper meaning for me, and I think it will for you as well. How to Save the Monarchs with Kylie Bomley. That's the topic of today's show, and it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. Well, I always like to start out by saying thank you for listening to the Still Growing podcast this week, especially if you're brand new, and if you're returning, a special welcome back to you as well. And I always love to encourage listeners to listen to as many gardening podcasts as they can get their hands on. I do that myself, and it's such a wonderful way to grow and learn as a gardener. And the tip I have for you this week is a garden podcast from the NationalTrust.org out of England. They released a blog post earlier this week, and here's what it said. Our National Trust Garden podcast is back for a second series. This time, we'll be taking you behind the scenes at three of our great historic gardens, and the episodes are available right now on iTunes. Episode one covers the beauty and scandal at Cliveden Garden. Episode two is all about breaking ground at Stowe. And then episode three covers subtropical Mount Stuart in Northern Ireland. So, The National Trust Garden Podcast is another one that you can add to your playlist this week. I'd also like to invite you to join the listener community for the show. It's a free private Facebook group that I host for listeners of the show. And these folks are made up of gardeners of all different skill levels and locations. And you can find it on Facebook just by typing in the name of our group into the search bar. Just type in the Still Growing Podcast group and the listener community will show up at the top of the search results in Facebook and then you just request to join and we'll admit you into the group. Now, there are a number of benefits for you if you join the group. First, you get access to all of the garden articles that I curate for you. They'll just show up in your Facebook feed. You won't have to do anything. Second, the Facebook group is the only place I go to pick lucky listeners for any show giveaways. Third, you get to interact with the great guests that have been on the show, like Kylie Bomley. In fact, she was answering some listener questions about monarchs. I'll be telling you about that in just a little bit. And then finally, there's no spam in the group. I work very hard to make sure everything in the group is very helpful for you. Everything I post is curated with you in mind to help you and your garden grow. Plus, it's free and easy to join. All right, I want to welcome new members to the group this week. Jeffrey Pinkston, Andy Ellis, Cambodia Green Stars, that's a gardening group out of Cambodia, Mark Malter, Tawny Anderson, Leah Lovelock, Becky Bordeaux, Yvonne Miller, John Ryan, Molly Reed, John Lavora, Kimberly Rikes, Kathy Mose, Justin Harvey Conforti, Matt Harvey Conforti, and Karen Rexroad. Karen was a featured guest on the show back in episode 582, talking all about the plant explorers. That was one of my favorite episodes this year. So if you like plant exploration, garden history, you'll love listening to Karen talk about the plant explorers. Anyway, welcome all of you new members. Now, I'll just share a few of the highlights from the group this week. John Brian Silverio had shared images of his watermelon patch. He was growing watermelon for the very first time, and he shared a picture of his baby, his watermelon baby, and he was tickled to death. It weighed seven pounds. It wasn't a 25-pound watermelon, but it is a watermelon, and it looks like a watermelon, and it tastes like a watermelon, and he was just tickled to death and we were happy for him. So congratulations on your watermelon. I think that's fantastic. Listener Rebecca Stoner-Kurtz is a blogger and a writer and a photographer, and her image made the cover of October Kentucky Gardener. It was taken in a garden that she did a profile on in Kentucky, and it was a very, very colorful garden and had tons of love poured into it. And so Rebecca shared the cover of this month's Kentucky Gardener featuring her image. That was fantastic to see. Congratulations, Rebecca. Listeners are starting to share images of their gardens as they transition into fall. Listener Laura Gonzalez shared a beautiful picture of autumn color, beautiful red, on her Persian ironwood. That was gorgeous. Listener Edgeworth Carter had a great post of a green pepper that he'd harvested that looked exactly like The Sorting Hat from Harry Potter. So if you know what the Sorting Hat looked like, it was kind of this hat that was all mushed down and had kind of a face on it. Well, that's exactly what this green pepper looked like. The Sorting Hat from Harry Potter. One of my favorite videos this past week was Danny Perkins sharing his process, his jelly assembly line as he called it. He was busy making jelly and I think he put up about 84 cans of jelly, he said. So, good work there Danny, that looked like tons of fun. And you can always tell when people truly have a love for canning because there is just a happiness and a mastery that just comes through in their work. And you could see it in this video. So good job, Danny. I'm super proud of listener Marilee Karwaski because she's putting together a presentation on gardening with deer. And I love the image that she shared with this post because it's got like three deer just standing around. They're wearing leather jackets, looking all tough. And one of them has a big hunk of some leaf hanging from its mouth, almost like a cigarette would, except it's a, I don't know, it's a leaf from something in the garden, of course. And she said, does anyone in this group have pictures of deer damage, deer resistant plants or gardens with critter protection that they would be willing to share with me? And, you know, you just never know what people are going to provide. And here, Drew Porter shared what I think is the quintessential deer damage picture because all she shared was this, a beautiful photo of a squash, a butternut squash that she had trellised. And I'm telling you, this squash is like suspended in the air, probably about five, six feet, looks like. It's hanging perfectly. It looks absolutely gorgeous. And then just imagine what it would look like if toward the bottom, as that squash starts to flare out and form the bell if a deer didn't come along and chomp a big old hunk out of it, because that's what that picture looked like. And it's just like, oh my gosh, anybody who sees it knows exactly what happened to that butternut squash. Deer got a hold of it. And here's what Drew wrote. She said, I decided to wait one more day to harvest my trellised butternut squash this is what I woke up to the next morning. The deer had to lean in far enough to bend the light fencing that had been protecting my fruit all season. Oh my goodness. It was perfect. Not only is the picture perfect, the story is perfect. We have all been there. We're just going to wait one more day to harvest. We've got one more day. Mm, And then the deer have other plans. Anyway, Drew, I'm sorry that happened to your butternut squash, but I have to say you couldn't have provided a more perfect picture for Marilee and her project. So love the picture, love the story, and love your project, Marilee. Good luck to you. Well, Alan Staley, a listener in our group, shared a story, and that story triggered a little bit of advice from today's guest, Kylie Bomley, which was fantastic. Here's what Alan wrote. I need some ideas. My son picked a cucumber that turned out to be a monarch chrysalis. It seems to be fully intact, just no longer hanging from the trellis it was on. Is there any way to save it? Can it continue to grow if it's laying down? Should I attempt to hang it again? I hope this isn't the end for that future monarch. Well, I reached out to Kylie for advice and guidance here. And another listener had suggested attempting to tie it to something using dental floss. And that's exactly what Kylie suggested as well. Kylie said, I would take the dental floss and gently tie it around the cremaster. That's the little black tip at the top. It looks kind of like the stem of an apple. She said, make sure you make it snug, but not so tight that you break the cremaster. Then tie it to something. Make sure it has enough room below for it to enclose. I've used a quart mason jar before. This works well because you can tape the ends of the floss to the jar and then use the ring to secure it. I usually put cotton or a Kleenex at the bottom just in case it falls. They can enclose when lying down. So if you couldn't hang that chrysalis, you could allow it to lay down. But it's not ideal, and they do need to hang afterwards or their wings won't form correctly. Here's a photo from one I took a couple of years ago. She's talking about this mason jar with the butterfly in it. Now, Alan wrote back and said that the chrysalis still had the cremaster, He said, I assume that's the black string they usually attach with. And he tried floss and thread, but he just couldn't get it to stay on. So at the moment, he has it lying on its side in a jar on some paper towels with a stick for climbing after it emerges. And that's as far as we've gotten with this story. So I'll love to hear back from Alan how this monarch butterfly did. I hope everything turned out fantastically And then it could start its long trek south to Mexico. But we'll have to wait to hear. Anyway, it was great to have Kylie in our group to answer those questions. That's fantastic. Now, don't forget, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, you can call the show at this number, 865-333-GROW or 865-333-4769. I so appreciate hearing from you guys. I love hearing what you're up to in the listener community as well, seeing your gardens, seeing the reward for all of your hard work this year. It's all fantastic. I just really get a kick out of seeing what you're all up to. And you do a great job of helping each other. So that's wonderful. So don't forget, if you'd like to join the group, I'd love to have you join us. Just head on over to Facebook and type in Still Growing Podcast Group and then just request to join. All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I've shared over the past week with the listener community and the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast group. And it's made up of a dozen different segments. Now, what's great about this for you is that you can stay pretty informed about the world of horticulture and gardening just by listening to this part of the show each week. And you can easily check out these curated posts and articles for yourself because I share all of it in the listener community, the Still Growing Podcast group on Facebook. So if you hear something and you want to read the full article, There's no need to take notes or track down links. Just head on over to the group and join. All right, let's kick things off with a guest update. I love looking at the posts that are shared by Barbara Pleasant. She was featured back in episode 584 with The Homegrown Pantry, her book on preserving and maximizing your garden harvest. And she has the best tips. In one post, she wrote, in fall, when the garden is bursting with fresh greens, I often use them as a green crust for casseroles. And then she has this image of a casserole dish, and at the bottom, she's lined it with different greens. And here's what she wrote. I place leaves of arugula, turnip, chard, or mustard in an oiled baking dish, then I add the ingredients for a rice, pasta, or potato casserole. Like magic, the greens bake into a phylo-thin lining for the dish. It's an easy way to eat more greens. I love that idea. And then don't forget, Barbara also wrote a book on houseplants. And here's what she said about how to use a houseplant that most of us have, and that's aloe vera. Here's her suggestion. Speaking of houseplants, did you know you can freeze aloe leaves and use the frozen pieces just like fresh ones? And the image that she shared is an aloe leaf that's been cut into little one inch chunks. So if you can imagine taking an aloe leaf and then just chopping it and having it be about the size of a very small ice cube, that's what Barbara did. And here's what she wrote. When repotting aloe, I often adopt the little offsets and discard the old mother plant. So it's great to have a use for the big leaves. With cut pieces in the freezer, you won't have to top leaves from your pretty plants when you need aloe to heal a burn. Plus, you get a double whammy of relief. Aloe plus Ice. I love this idea. Two fantastic tips from author Barbara Pleasant. Thank you, Barbara. In sustainability this week, The Telegraph out of England shared a great post that was called Autumn Garden Ideas. Plant a hedge for birds to feast on. This was a great article because it reminds us that not only do hedges create a place of safety and habitat for birds, shelter from the elements, safety from predators, but it also can be a food source if there are berries or edibles. And then it suggests choosing native berries or nut-bearing hedge plants like hawthorn, blackthorn, crabapple, hazel, dog rose, and elderflower, just to name a few. Great idea here. In Continuing Ed, Apartment Therapy shared a really wonderful post with a before and after, and it featured a scraggly old yard that became a beautiful oasis. There were a lot of wonderful tips in this post, but one of my favorite elements was just a very simple cover for the air conditioner that happened to match the siding on the house. It was simple, it was brilliant, and it didn't detract from the garden at all. What a great idea. Check that one out. The Empress of Dirt shared a great tip, in fact, five tips for a better spring garden. There are many things we can do right now to make sure our spring gardens are fantastic. So, spoiler alert, here were her top five tips. Divide and transplant your current plants. Save tender perennials for next year. Sow seeds and plant bulbs. Tidy up your garden beds and do some prep for spring in those beds. And then finally go through the garden and do a tool and garden container cleanup. So great tips, very basic, very elemental, but also very foundational to getting you off to a quick start next spring in your garden. In the how-to DIY segment, John Sheeper's Kitchen Garden Seeds shared a fun post called Tips for Storing Pumpkins and Winter Squash. And by the way, if you don't subscribe to both the Empress of Dirt and John Sheeper's Kitchen Garden Seeds, both of those newsletters, you are missing a goldmine of information for yourself as a gardener. So the next time you're online, head on over to the Empress of Dirt and head on over to John Sheeper's Kitchen Garden Seeds. They do a great job with recipes. They do a great job with just general gardening information. I love both of those newsletters. I read them cover to cover when I get them. Lots of great tips, lots of great pictures, wonderful sound ideas, just good, good information for you. So check that out. Also in the how-to DIY segment this week was an article from Minneapolis Home and Design in their August 2017 issue, and it was just a one-page article. It was so simple but so helpful on how to mount staghorn ferns. And I know when I talked to Mary and Annette over at Potted, that was one of their projects that they were working on for apartment therapy. So if you want to hear them talk about that, they do that at the end of the interview that I had with them back in that episode. So helpful and so on trend right now to have a mounted staghorn fern in your family room, your living room, your kitchen, your bathroom, wherever you want to put them. They're gorgeous. And of course, they would love the humidity of a bathroom. So shower plants, I heard, are up over 300% on Pinterest. People are always looking for plants that they can have in their showers or in their bathrooms. So a staghorn fern would be a great option. But Mary and Annette broke it down and made it sound so easy. And then of course, there's this fabulous tutorial, this one page tutorial that was featured in one of my local magazines, I couldn't resist. So check that out as maybe a project for you as you head out of fall and into winter. It's nice to have something new from a houseplant standpoint in your house as we try to get through the long winter. In the plant spotlight, Sunset shared a wonderful post just yesterday on eight fall grasses to plant right now. Some of the suggestions that I loved were Indian rice grass, turkey foot, I remember when I talked to Marta McDowell about the world of Laura Ingalls Wilder. That was one of Almanzo's favorite grasses, the turkey foot grass. And then, of course, rubrum, the purple fountain grass. You can't go wrong with rubrum. There were a number of fun posts that made the news segment this week. First up is an article that was out of a local paper that was talking about the Three Sisters planting method. And then at the very bottom the author mentioned that the planting method is illustrated on the back of the Sacagawea dollar. And I thought, oh my goodness, are you kidding? I couldn't believe it. And sure enough, I checked and there it is. So the first coin in the Native American series that was issued back in 2009 was designed by mint sculptor-engraver Norman Nemeth, and the subject being the spread of three sisters agriculture. And it shows a Native American woman planting seeds, and those seeds are the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. And that is what's shown on the back of the Sacagawea dollar, so now you know. One of the other stories that I thought was absolutely fascinating is the fact that a massive wave of butterflies was lighting up Denver's weather radar. And here's what the headline says. A lacy cloud-like pattern drifting across a Denver area radar screen turned out to be a 70-mile-wide wave of butterflies. Paul Schlatter of the National Weather Service said he first thought flocks of birds were making the pattern, but the cloud was headed northwest with the wind, and migrating birds would be southbound in October. So he asked bird watchers on social media what it might be, and by Wednesday he had his answer. People reported seeing a loosely spaced net of painted lady butterflies drifting with the wind through the area. And then Paul said that the colors on the radar image are a result of the butterflies' shape and direction, not their own colors. Now, apparently, it's more common for Midwestern radar stations to pick up movements of big groups of butterflies, but it's a first for Denver. So that's pretty cool. And Kylie Bomley said that that's been reported with monarchs before. That's what she shared when she saw this post in the group as well. So that was cool to hear. This next story I liked as well, and this was shared in The Guardian. And the headline is, Japan sends in experts to rescue the world's bedraggled bonsais. So apparently what's going on here is that there are bonsai gardens that have been planted all around the world. But of course, without the expertise and dedication of Japanese gardeners, so many of these bonsai gardens have just turned into messes, just nightmare situations. And so what's happening is you have the good people of Japan sending experienced staff to go in and clean things up and get things back to normal. So that's wonderful that Japan is willing to send in experts to help with these gardens. And I'd love to see some before and after pictures of that. That would be very interesting. Finally, in the news, the Smithsonian shared an event that they just had, and it was simply called Food in the Garden, Science and Sustenance at the Smithsonian. So this is a special evening that they host once a year as the summer draws to a close, and they offer food, education, and fun to all of their guests. The event is held in the Victory Garden itself. And this year, the Smithsonian Gardens teamed up with the National Museum of American History to revamp a terrace garden to create something that they called Common Ground, our American Garden Installation. And this garden told the story of America through plants. And I love the themes of this garden, memory, honoring our heritage, healing, using plants for traditional and modern medicine, discovery, introducing new plants to the landscape, and ingenuity, using plants in production and industry. And then they had a wonderful event that was called Fermentation Nation, and there was a discussion panel that had a brewer, a probiotic food drink company founder, and a doctor of fungal genetics. That was awesome. And then after the discussion, you could go outside and enjoy all of these different food and drink products that were made as a result of fermentation. So just a cool sounding event. And if you're looking to put together some type of special garden event next year, I'd read through this. There's so many good ideas and wonderfully executed things in this piece. It just might spark something for you as you're putting together your garden event. In the Dream Guest segment is a woman I found out about who writes a blog called 66 Square Feet. Her name's Marie Philune. She's from South Africa, but she was raised in New York, and she does these Autumn Wilds food walks where she takes people through the wooded hills and dales of beautiful Greenwood Cemetery where some of New York's most impressive trees grow. And here's what she wrote. While we'll be identifying everything botanically edible as we walk, this is also a chance to explore one of the most serene places in the city. Greenwood is home not only to Leonard Bernstein, but mushrooms and acorns, beech nuts, and sheep sorrel. Then at the very end, she offers her guests a fall picnic of seasonal wild-inspired snacks, hen of the woods pate, mugwort shortbread, and persimmon spice cakes, and a cordial. Doesn't this sound fun? Anyway, I'd love to talk to Marie about how she does these walks and just learn a little bit more about everything she does here. It sounds so cool. In Science This Week, Science Daily shared that two Caribbean birdcatcher trees were just named to honor two women with overlooked botanical works. One of the trees was dedicated to Francis Horn, an American illustrator who spent 45 years painting 750 watercolors of plants from Puerto Rico, and the other was named for Dr. Anna Roque Dupree, a Puerto Rican educator, writer, and suffragist, and an amateur ethnobotanist who spent over three decades to prepare a manuscript aimed to make botany more accessible to the general public. Also in Science Daily was a report that came out this past week that said they're now able to prove that plants become more tolerant when living in symbiosis with fungi. So the gist of the report is that thanks to that symbiotic relationship, plants not only become more tolerant to disease, but can also help contribute to a more sustainable agricultural practice. So that's good news. There are a couple of fun shopping posts this week. Gardenista shared a review of a really fun book that's called Winter Gardens, Reinventing the Season, and it's by French photographer Cédric Paulette. And he has spent nine years documenting some of the most beautiful winter gardens. And of course, one of the key features in any winter garden is trees. The pictures that they show from this book are gorgeous. So that one's on my shopping list for Christmas. Then here's another book I fell in love with, and I just ordered this from Amazon. I think I got it for about $20. Anyway, the title of this blog post was, Heidi Swanson Loves Morrow East, and She Wants You to Know. Not only did the title of this blog post catch my attention, but also the image of the cookbook caught my attention because it's so pretty. And it starts out by saying that this cookbook is one of their all-time favorites, Bon Appetit, and it's on their list of 13 healthy-ish cookbooks that changed the way we eat. So this cookbook is the work of Samuel and Samantha Clark, proprietors of the much-celebrated Moral restaurant in London, and they happen to garden at the Manor Garden Allotments in England. And they grew on this little swatch of land there, and they documented their experience. In fact, Morro East documents the couple's final growing season at the allotments because they were established in the early 1900s, but then raised in 2012 by the London Olympic Committee. So this cookbook called Moro East, M-O-R-O East, Captures a snapshot of the recipes, details, and people who intersected the Clark's time at the gardens. And I love what it says here. It says, among the sunflowers, green tomatoes, wild poppy leaves, herbs, sorrel, and spinach, the theater of the allotment unfolded. There were children. There were 80 year olds there were all ages in between. Morrow East is a bookend of sorts, the last moments of a place that existed for nearly a century. So I love that combination of the cookbook, but also the garden that inspired the cookbook. And of course, all of the people as well. And the fascinating thing about this particular allotment was that it was not only a place for Londoners, but also for families from Greece, Italy, Cyprus, Turkey, and the West Indies. And they were all tending their little garden plots together. So such a cool story. Anyway, I'm looking forward to getting that this week. There were many great recipes this week. The Nasha shared a wonderful Mujadira stuffed squash recipe that I just can't get out of my head. I've got to make it this week. There was a squash and leek soup that was featured in the Denver Post that looked tremendous. Be Still and Eat shared a perfect spicy pumpkin bread that made the group. People were very excited about that. Then finally, OXO shared just a great overall post that was called What's in Season in October and How to Prepare It. And the one that caught my eye was how to make cauliflower rice with a tabletop spiralizer. Cauliflower rice is all the rage. You just take cauliflower, break it into tiny, tiny little pieces, and you basically have a rice substitute. It's pretty good, too. Finally, an inspiration... Charles Dowding shared his results from his trial garden where he was testing the results of no rotation and no dig on his autumn harvest. And the results were very inspiring. He's got great production in his beds where he did no dig and no tilling. Beautiful pictures of his fall harvest. Just absolutely gorgeous. My favorite picture is just a close up of him in his garden boots, his wellies, and then on either side of his feet, are these big piles of carrots and his feet are in the middle of these two piles so it looks really really cool but he's just got a very productive garden lots going on here very inspiring so check that out in quotables this week i found a great little post called merry october as in merry christmas but it's called merry october october baptize me with leaves swaddle me in corduroy and nurse me with split pea soup. October, tuck tiny candy bars in my pockets and carve my smile into a thousand pumpkins. Oh, autumn. Oh, tea kettle. Oh, grace. Well, that's it for the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder, you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed if you join the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. I'd love to meet you in the group. With that, let's transition to the topic of today's show, How to Save the Monarchs with Kylie Bomley. What were you doing 10 years ago? Imagine being able to go back in time and tell your old self what you're up to today, how things have turned out, how chance encounters set you on a new path to something you could have never imagined. That's Kylie's story. I alluded to this in the intro of today's show, and I'll let Kylie share the details of her story with you during our chat. But suffice it to say, Kylie didn't imagine herself when she was a little girl growing up to be a champion for monarchs. And no, she didn't go to school to learn how to save the monarchs. When she was getting married and raising kids and working in her non-gardening career, monarchs probably didn't make her top 100, make that top 1 million list. But then suddenly, there they were. They were on her radar. They were impacting her reading choices, her spare time, her garden, and her life. And they became a passion project for her. Kylie began learning all she could about monarchs. She started studying up. She became a citizen scientist, participating in several programs to provide data to researchers studying monarchs through Monarch Watch with the University of Kansas and Journey North, which reports migration sightings, roofs, and other key monarch data. She made sure her rural Ohio garden could become a Certified Monarch Way Station. It's number 948, by the way, and that was back in 2006. Then she also made sure her garden was a Certified Wildlife Habitat, and then she registered with Pollinator Partnership as part of the Million Pollinator Garden Challenge. And somewhere along the way, she began to conceive of a book to help spread the word. The book she's sharing with us today simply called The Monarch, Saving Our Most Loved Butterfly. In Kylie's bio, she writes that discovering the unique and beautiful monarch butterfly has helped her appreciate how so many things in nature depend on so many other things including human beings. To be sure, they are depending on us. Monarchs are depending on us. And frankly, monarchs are in trouble, which makes the work of people like Kylie, who care about saving monarchs, all the more important. I noticed right away that Kylie's book is called The Monarch, Saving Our Most Loved Butterfly. Most loved. It's that emotional connection, that love for them that makes people pay attention. Across the country, people are planting milkweed in their front yards even. Folks respond when they hear about the plight of monarchs because we really do love them. It's that special affection for monarchs That makes Kylie want her grandchildren to not only be able to tell the wondrous story of the monarch to their own children and grandchildren, but to be able to show them much of it firsthand. Ten years ago, Kylie's chance encounter with a monarch made her want to learn more, discover more, and do more on their behalf that little spark of curiosity and love would grow into a decade's worth of experiences, culminating in Kylie writing a book and experiencing a rare once-in-a-lifetime trip as Kylie, like her beloved monarchs, made her way to the sanctuary in Mexico. Isn't it funny how life turns out? Who can say that a single monarch can't find their way into someone's heart, it can happen. It did happen. It's time to float like a butterfly, a beloved monarch butterfly, and join the effort to save them with today's guest, Kylie Bomley. Well, hi there, Kylie. Welcome to the Still Growing Podcast. Hi, Jennifer. It's good to be here. Well, we were talking before the show, and I said, Are you known as the Monarch Lady? Do you have some type of moniker now that you've done so much work on the Monarch? And you said, No, that's not the case.
1: No, it is. I, I, once in a while, people will, um, you know, use that, but nothing's really stuck. What I find is that. People will make posts on my Facebook page about monarchs and they'll say, I saw this and it made me think of you, which I love that um, because, you know, I'm interested in anything about the monarch and the fact that a lot of my Facebook friends and acquaintances realize that and go out of their way to post something for me to look at. You know, I really, I love that when they do that.
0: Well, and you and I have many mutual friends, and we're a little unique in that our Facebook feeds are filled with images of people's gardens and, of course, pollinators and butterflies and and monarch caterpillars are certainly part of that. Now, I've noticed more posts about monarch caterpillars and monarch butterflies this summer than I have in previous years, which tells me this whole movement and awareness about the plight of the monarch is becoming more mainstream. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I agree there. We are seeing more of that. And I think there are two reasons for that. One is what you said. I think that because of people like me, and there are lots of people out there like me that are calling attention to the issue of the monarch decline. uh, You know, we've, we've been talking about it for a while now. So everybody is, more aware, but the second reason, I think, is because we are experiencing a really, really good summer with the monarchs. Uh, All the counts with the ways that they monitor them, with larva, milkweed, uh, you know, sightings of monarchs, and the number that people are bringing in to raise that they're finding, all those counts are up. So, you know, that bodes well for the monarch, and so I think those two things combined are why we're seeing a lot more about them.
0: Well, and you have a website that's called Our Little Acre. So it's ourlittleacre.com, right? Right. And you're based out of where? And then also, do you see lots of monarchs on your property, on your little acre?
1: I am in northwest Ohio. It's it's very rural. I always tell people because if, if they ask what town I live near, I know they're never going to hear of it. They won't know it because it's only got a population of one eighty. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but yeah. It's farm country and um used to be part of the Great Black Swamp and until so they drained it for farmland. But I always tell people that I'm about 30 miles straight east of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And a lot of people know where that is, but I'm, but I'm actually in Ohio. And I, you know, I grow plants and flowers and things for the monarchs and other pollinators. So I generally do see quite a few monarchs in my garden toward the last, well, mostly the last half of summer. I can go out there any given day and probably see a monarch flying around in the garden, sometimes two or three. Um, but this summer does seem like it's it's better than most. I'm seeing an increase. I'm seeing an increase in the number of eggs that I'm finding on my milkweed. I find small caterpillars. And then my husband and I take a walk every day. We live out in the country, and we take a walk every day. And, and there are a few milkweed plants that grow alongside the road. So, of course, I have to check those and see if I find any eggs. Because, frankly, those areas are going to be mowed at some point, and I don't know when they're going to do that. So I'm constantly checking them so that I can... Quote rescue those those little eggs and little caterpillars, but I'm finding I'm, I'm having a, a banner year this year for raising them.
0: Your book starts out with a story, and I thought it would be uh-huh. nice if you shared and just a reading of this particular story because it really tees up the whole book so nicely. And it's how this whole passion for monarchs came about for you.
1: Okay. On a sunny day in September 2006, the 17th to be exact, my mother and I were traveling down U.S. Route 30 on our way home to Ohio from a trip to Delaware. We were in western Pennsylvania when we noticed a small sign by the side of the road, indicating that the United Flight 93 Memorial was just two miles to the south. It had been five years since that tragedy, and being that it was September, it had been on our minds we decided to turn off and pay our respects to those who lost their lives in that field near Shanksville. After spending some time at what was then a makeshift memorial at the crash site, we traveled a little further south into town to visit the chapel. There was a lovely little garden there surrounding a black granite monument, and we spent 10 or 15 minutes in quiet contemplation. As we got back in the car to continue on our journey home, Mom held something out to me and said, Look what I found. In the palm of her hand was a monarch butterfly, no longer alive and in pretty ragged condition. We took a moment to look it over and noticed a small, round, white sticker on one of its wings. The sticker was no bigger around than the end of a pencil eraser, but it had some writing on it. I squinted to see what it said. It listed a website, monarchwatch.org, a phone number, and a set of three letters and three numbers indicating that this was a unique identification tag. We set it on the dash of the car as we left town, and I made a mental note to check it out when we got home. The tag on that little butterfly set me off on a journey of my own, one that would over and over again astound me at the miracle of it, the wonder of nature, the tenacity of living things. Over the next 10 years, I would continue to add to my knowledge and experience about something that had been going on for centuries, with a part of it still taking place right in my own backyard. I almost couldn't believe that it had taken nearly 50 years for me to discover and appreciate the monarch butterfly, and it took another 10 years to find out where that tagged Pennsylvania monarch had started its journey. It had a pretty incredible story of its own, which I'll tell you about later in the book.
0: This is really the beginning of this whole passion and love affair with the monarch for you.
1: It it was, although I don't think I knew at the time where that would lead me. I mean, we can't know that, you know, at the time, but it as my editor told me while I was writing this book, she said, you know, it's almost as if you had to live your whole life up until this point for this point, that this is what you were meant to do is to tell this story of the monarch and help it. And as I look back on on my journey in the past, it's been eleven, almost eleven. Well, it is eleven years now. Um, I would have never guessed that I would care so much about this little insect. But you know, it's pretty unique. It's a, it's a fascinating process that they go through, and I and I think it's like a lot of nature that we don't take the time to stop and investigate and see what's going on right around us. It seems so commonplace, yet it's not. And I think that, you know, what this has done for me has given me a whole new appreciation for nature in general.
0: Well, and it's opened up the doors to many new relationships as well, one of which is Dr. Brower out of Sweetbriar College. Tell me about how his expertise has really helped you better understand this insect.
1: it's kind of funny because the, the first time I emailed Dr. Brower, it was about using a photograph that he had taken, and I wanted permission to use it. And, you know, he didn't know who I was. I certainly knew who he was, you know, one of the world's foremost authorities on monarchs. He's been studying them since the 1950s, I think. And I didn't even know if he would answer me. And he did, and, and that started some email communication back and forth, and I knew that he would have some of the answers that I wanted when I was doing this book. I did my own research, but you know there are just some details that you can't find. So I would take the email, and I would email Dr. Brower, and he would email me back. He was so patient, and there were some things that I didn't quite understand, and he set me straight on those, and, and he actually went through my book and helped to edit parts of it. Which I'm so grateful. I didn't ask him to do that; he just did it. I developed a relationship with him that, you know, we email back and forth now. So if there's anything else, you know, I find new information and I I like to get his opinion on it. And it's kind of nice to have that person that you can go to, who you trust, because you know that they've been studying this their whole life. It's what they've dedicated their life to. So yeah, I I really appreciate that friendship and and that relationship that I have with him now, too.
0: As I always like to point out to people, whether I'm doing a podcast about monarchs or anything else, you would think that these subjects, these topics in the world of gardening are pretty innocuous. And in truth, there's always a fair amount of controversy that seems to surround almost any topic in gardening. And monarchs are no different. In fact, I think with right. monarchs, there's there's a fair amount of controversy. There's a fair amount of skepticism and Uh, criticism on many different aspects of what's causing demise of the monarchs or is there a demise of the monarchs, you know, depending on who you're talking to, everything from habitat to pesticide use or herbicide use or however you want to call it. How has all of these different viewpoints and the fact that there's not a definitive piece of research or coherence around some of this data made writing a book like this more challenging?
1: Well, it was challenging. And as you know, because you've read the book, that there are several subjects that I broach in it about that that are controversial. And I struggled with how to deal with that because, you know, of course, we all have our own opinions about things, but I didn't want to inflict, I guess is a, a good word, Um, my opinion on anybody else, because if the experts can't even agree on something, you know, why, why should I say, oh, this is, you know, this is how it is, or this is how I think it is. I just presented the facts that I know that I found in my research. And then if they want to do more research on their own, or if they, they have an opinion after they've read what I presented, then that's great. That's their opinion and, and they're entitled to it. And I, you know, it's gotten them thinking about it. Um, But I didn't really take a stand on much of anything personally um, because some of the facts just stand for themselves. One of the things that you mentioned was the habitat. You know, is the habitat the big issue? Well, honestly, I think it's good that it's not just one thing that's causing the decline. You know, there are several different factors causing it because what that means is, there are several different fronts that we can fight it on. You know, like maybe one person can help in this way, and another person can help another way. If it were just one thing, I, I don't know that you would get everybody on board, enough people on board, you know, to to do what we need to do. And I think the fact that you have a multitude of ways to help is only a good thing. But back to the habitat thing. Yeah, there's a lot of people, I mean, there, there is a movement out there that says that it's not the lack of habitat. We have plenty of milkweed. Well, there was a study that came out that was really interesting, and Dr. Brower was part of that study, by the way. And it said that they, when they take the counts in the breeding ground, which is here in the, in the United States during the summer, when they take the counts of monarchs that they see, we generally are counting them in areas that are not within the field because we've killed the, the milkweed in our farm fields. We know that the monarchs prefer to use milkweed that is contained in that natural habitat in those fields where it's not all in a cluster. It's just, you know, scattered here and there. They prefer that. So what happened is that I'm hoping I can explain this so it's not too confusing, but when they took the counts, they always took them at the edges of the fields and in areas like that where milkweed was allowed to grow. Well, once they got rid of that milkweed that was in the fields where they did not take the counts before, where did those monarchs go? They had to go where the milkweed was. So let's say when they took the counts, when the milkweed was still in the field, you're going to have a certain amount of monarchs where they took the counts after the milkweed disappeared from the field, they're still taking the counts in the same area, but the numbers were remaining constant. Well, what that actually meant was the numbers, overall numbers, were going down because you're bringing those monarchs out that weren't being counted before from areas that weren't being counted before. Let's say you have a field and it's got milkweed in it, okay, and and the monarch prefer milkweed that's in the middle of a field, they just tend to want to go in those areas. So you've got the milkweed in the field, and you've got the milkweed that's out at the edges in the ditches and things like that. They were taking counts. This is where they take the counts. It's in in the ditches next to the field. So the ones that are in the field are not being counted. So the actual count is higher because we're not counting the ones that are in the field. They didn't go out in there and, and count you know, how many monarchs they saw in that area, in that particular area. They only counted the ones that were in, in uh, along the edges. So you have, let's say, you, I'm going to just throw out a number, You're gonna, they got 25. Let's just say they got 25 for that area. And then along comes the herbicides and pesticides and things like that, and the milkweed disappeared from the field. And they're continuing to take the count out on that outer area where we got the count of 25 before, Okay. And we're still getting counts of about 25. Well, since the monarchs can't make use of the milkweed that's no longer there in the field, they're coming out and using the milkweed that's on the edges. So that's artificially keeping that number constant. Huh. So Do you get what I, do you get what I mean? Because, because if you took out those monarchs that were once in the field, if you took that out of that count, that number is going to be lower.
0: So what you're saying is there used to be milkweed dispersed in the crops. Right. And that's no longer happening.
1: And that's no longer there. Monarchs have to come out of the field and okay. use the milkweed that's out on the edges.
0: And I also thought that I had read that, you know, our ditches and other habitat areas are no longer there either. That you, we used to have ditches that were just full of milkweed and that's just not not happening anymore.
1: Well, we used to have uh, fence rows and things like that where where milkweed grew, and now you know, the fields are farming edge to edge. On the you know, they're not allowing for as much of that fence rows that they once had, and then the mowing, we just constantly are mowing those ditches. But that's changing too. I know in the state of Ohio, they have modified their mowing so that they are not mowing as often, and they're not mowing back as far off the road. So they're allowing some of this natural habitat to grow where it once you know was being mowed
0: Hmm. well and loss of habitat seems to be such a subtle thing that we're not always aware of it when it's happening but after the years accumulate we look back and go hey yeah we're not growing milkweed or we don't see milkweed around anymore it's it's very very insidious isn't it yeah it
1: is and it's not just milkweed you know it's um I, I know people get upset, well, you know, what's the big deal about the monarch? Can we not live without the monarch? Well, you know, yeah, we can, but it's just an indication of a general problem. Uh, you know, it's not just milkweed that grows in those habitat areas. It's other host plants for other pollinators. And so, you know, it's kind of an indication of uh, of the general problem. And like you said, it it's happened over a gradual period of time. Uh, we've got... You know, more people, where there's urbanization that's taking out habitat, um, you know, the growing for biofuel. It's it's a lot of different things that are, are destroying the habitat that was once there. So we just need to find ways to restore that in the places that we can, and that's what's going on. You know, luckily, people are realizing that, and they're taking measures to make special effort to restore some of this lost habitat. Well, let's
0: shift gears a little bit and talk about the monarch, some of its characteristics. Of course, the magnificent change it goes through from caterpillar to butterfly. The taxonomy for this particular insect is Danaus plexippus. So you write in your book, it's the most recognized butterfly. Right. What is the reaction that you get from people when you give a presentation on the Monarch? Is, is there a general consensus that there's a lot of affinity for the Monarch?
1: Oh, yeah. everybody. I mean, it seems like everybody knows what a Monarch looks like. I mean, some people, you know, they think they do and they don't. But in general, people do because we used to have so many. Um, and people remember when they used to fly in numbers you know, they don't anymore. And what they do notice now is when they do see one, they're really surprised. It's like, oh, wow, there's a monarch. And I think that once something starts disappearing, then it gets our attention and we seem to value what seems to be rare. And sadly, you know, it it is becoming rare, more rare. Um, And I think that, you know, People are happy to know ways that they can bring this back so that we do have more monarchs. Um, I just spent a few days with Sarah Dykeman, who is a biologist from Kansas, and she is bicycling her way from Mexico all the way to Canada, which is the farthest northern range of the monarch, and back again to Mexico. She is now on her way back to Mexico. And she spoke in our area, and she stayed at our house a couple of nights. And she made a a comment that just really stuck with me during one of her her presentations. She said, you know, I hear people all the time say, I remember when there used to be so many monarchs, and now we just don't see them that much anymore. And she said at 32, you know, she could be my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) And And she said, what I don't want to to happen is for someday for people to say, oh, I remember when there used to be monarchs. That was really powerful to me because, you know, if things continue to go the way they have been going in the last 20 years, that very well could happen for us here in the eastern part of the U.S. You know, the monarchs are not going to disappear because they do have some smaller populations in other parts of our country and in certain places in the world. But this eastern population is by far the largest, and that migration, that miraculous migration, very well could disappear. Hmm. Well, you write in the
0: book that males are bigger than females, and that once they emerge in their adult form, they don't grow anymore.
1: When I say that adults are bigger, it's not a lot. It's not something that you would notice. With the naked eye. I mean, it's, it's not, not a very, there's not much difference between males and females. It's not like you're going to see them side by side and be able to tell that way whether they're male or they're female. But one of the, the cool things, well, I mean, the way you can tell a male from a female is because the male has two black dots on its two lower wings. There's one dot on each wing, and the female does not have those. But one thing that we see in the fall with the migratory ones, we do see that the wings are just a little bit longer and the colors are darker. And that's because the scales that give the butterfly its color are a little more dense for those migratory monarchs. So they appear to be a little bit darker. And I've had, I've experienced that here. Many of the ones that I raised. I tag that are going to be migrating, I noticed that there's that beautiful, deep, deep orange. And the ones that come out in the summer in the earlier generations, you you don't generally see that difference in the coloration. Hmm.
0: I'd love to have you take us through the life cycle, which you start to discuss on page 20 in your book. But there is a lovely little text box where you share the number of fertilized eggs a female monarch can lay, and I found that absolutely fascinating. So I'd love to have you read that little insert and then take us through the life cycle.
1: Okay. The number of fertilized eggs a single female monarch will lay varies greatly determined by factors such as weather, availability of milkweed, and her age, but it's probably somewhere between four and five hundred. The largest number of eggs known to be laid by a single monarch is 1,179 by a female raised in captivity. And I want to say one thing about that in relation to the mortality of the monarch in particular. We know that out in nature, less than 5%, and it's probably more like 1 or 2%, of those eggs will survive to adulthood. So let's just say a, a female monarch lays 400 eggs. You know, she might maybe four eight of those will survive to adulthood. That's that's just crazy when you think about that. But that's, you know, that's dismal, but in the insect world in general, um, mortality rate is pretty high. And that's why most insects will reproduce and lay, you know, hundreds of eggs. Because, you know, in the insect world, it's a, you find something to eat or you keep from being eaten. It's just kind of the way their their world is.
0: The thing that I find interesting is they're laying so many eggs and so few actually make it, but they don't lay all their eggs in one spot. It, It looks like they're just doing like one at a time. Is that how it is?
1: They do, yeah. They lay one egg at a time, and in general, uh, they will lay one egg per plant, and that is to assure that her offspring will have enough to eat.
0: Mm.
1: Now you will, and I have found several eggs, you know, on a plant. But that sometimes that depends on how much milkweed there is. You know, if they don't find much milkweed, then they they may lay more than one egg per milkweed plant.
0: It sure would be a lot easier to help them if they would lay, you know, 400 eggs on one plant because then we could take those in (laughs) and, and feed them milkweed. But this is why it's so challenging because you have to really scour those plants sometimes to even see these little eggs. And I loved the illustration that you have right below this caption because it shows a grain of salt next to the egg. That's how little they are. They're tough to
1: spot sometimes. They are, and I still, even this summer, um, one time I was fooled because, you know, milkweed has that milky sap, and if there's a little crack in the leaf, it'll ooze out a little bit of that, that sap, and it'll dry as a little round white dot. And sometimes you'll look at that and you'll think, oh, that's a, that's a monarch egg. And you're fooled. <laughs> because, uh, when it dries, it dries to that creamy color. And, you know, it's very, it's very difficult to see the, the little ridges that the monarch egg has. So, uh, they can be, they can be pretty hard to spot sometimes. I'm nearsighted, so it's a little easier for me, but my husband's farsighted and he has a little harder time finding them. And, uh, you know, they're just so tiny. And the thing that, that amazes me is that, okay, the egg is one size, but there's a whole caterpillar inside there too. Yeah. You know, that comes, that comes out and it, and it has all its parts. <laughs> and what's interesting
0: to me is as I'm listening to you tell about how this sap can kind of ooze out a little bit is kind of camouflaging these little eggs. It gives them a chance to survive or at least get hatched.
1: Well, you know, some of their predators are pretty small too. So, you know, it's all a relative size to them. What I have found a lot of this year, and I don't know what's doing it, but I have found a lot of empty egg cases and I don't, and then I'm not finding the caterpillar. So something is robbing, robbing the cradle by, you know, eating the eggs, uh, eating the caterpillar out of the eggs. I've heard other people say they're, they're encountering that too. There's just okay. so many predators out there for them that you know survival is is really tough. They lay them usually, not always uh they'll lay them on any part of the milkweed, but usually they'll lay them on the underneath side of the leaf, which is a little more protected and again, the one per plant, if they laid all their eggs in the same plant, you know once a predator finds that they're gonna they're gonna just wipe it out so I think by them laying them. One at a time and sparsely around. That's probably helpful to them as far as predation is is concerned. Hmm. I would think.
0: And is there some some type of sticky substance on the egg, or how does the egg actually adhere to the leaf the way that it does? It almost looks like it it's ingrown in a sense.
1: Yeah, she does. She lays down a little sticky substance before she lays the egg, so that it it's secure there. It holds it on there. And I know when I bring a leaf in that has an egg on it, I'll rinse the leaf off and I'll rinse the water right over the egg and it doesn't come off.
0: Okay. Well, finish walking us through the life cycle. And as you're doing it, maybe tell us the perfect time to take the caterpillar and, and protect it by bringing it inside and raising it in the house, which I know so many gardeners attempted this summer But not everyone has had success doing this. So if there are some tricks and tips to that as you take us through the life cycle, do tell us so that people can experience greater success in raising these monarch caterpillars.
1: Okay. The first time that I raised a monarch, well, the first summer that I raised monarchs, I had success with my first one. But the second one... It made it all the way through to chrysalis stage. And then one day I looked and there was this white string hanging out from the bottom of the chrysalis. And in the bottom of the container, there was this little white maggot. And the chrysalis, the monarch died, uh, did not survive. And that was because the caterpillar had been parasitized by the tachinid fly. It's a very common predator of the monarchs. The tachinid fly looks like a housefly. It's considered to be a beneficial insect because, you know, it, it will kill other kinds like cutworms. Any kind of caterpillar is, it lays its eggs on it and, and then they're parasitized. But, you know, it's not good for the monarch. So the best way to assure success is to be able to collect the egg before it actually becomes a caterpillar, because once it's a caterpillar, then the tachinid fly can lay its eggs on it, and and it will eventually die. But it starts out, the monarch lays the egg, and it takes about three to five days for that egg to hatch. Then for the next two weeks, all that caterpillar does is eat and poop. Eat and poop. And in the two-week time period, it will increase in size by 2,000 times and by weight 3,000 times. You can almost watch it grow from day to day. It's amazing how quickly they grow. And then once that stage is over, it will well, it will molt a total of five times because the skin can't stretch enough to accommodate that growth, so it has to molt and and shed its old skin, and the final time when it does that is when it forms its chrysalis and pupa, and it will crawl around and find a horizontal surface, and it will spin a little um, silk pad, silk button, at the top, and then it will hang on with its They're called anal prolegs at the very back end of the caterpillar. It will hang on and then it will hang in a J formation and it will hang like that for a day or so. And then it will shed that skin a final time and as it does that, you'll be able to see the chrysalis underneath and then it will hang in that chrysalis for oh, depending on temperature, the warmer it is, the faster it does this but This summer, it's been taking about 11 or 12 days in the chrysalis stage before the adult butterfly then breaks out of that and and comes out as an adult.
0: I love your pictures of the butterfly freeing itself from the chrysalis because it reminds me of Christmas time, actually, because it looks like it's breaking free of this shrink wrap seal because the chrysalis turns into almost like this clear plastic looking thing. But that's what it has to get out of. I know listener Danny Perkins had just shared pictures of his monarch caterpillars, and they had climbed their way up under a fountain that he has. So, you know, Uh imagine like a big basin. Well, that's where he has, I think, two chrysalises right now, caterpillars that were looking for that horizontal surface, and there they are.
1: And it's funny how they, you know, a lot of times when we do find them, and it's you don't often find them out in the wild because they're pretty good about finding places that are are safe, you know, what they consider to be safe. Sometimes you wonder why they choose the places they do because it might not seem safe to us. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a lot of people will say, well, I, I see caterpillars on my milkweed, and then they go out, and they're gone, they're just gone. And they assume that they've been eaten, which, you know, they may have. But more than likely, if they reach that large, you know the larger stage and then you don't see them they've crawled away somewhere else to make that chrysalis and they can crawl away 30 to 40 feet away from the milkweed they very often do not make their chrysalis on milkweed because that would be too obvious to the predators you know oh, they're pretty vulnerable when they're in that chrysalis stage so you know they can't defend themselves so Uh, To stay in a place where they're known to be would not be very smart.
0: (laughs) Well, and let's talk about that chrysalis stage. So when they're actually in their chrysalis, they're hanging upside down, is that the time to try to bring them inside? Is it wise to try to remove them at that point, or should you just leave them alone?
1: Um, The chrysalis can be parasitized by some wasps. There are some wasps that will pierce that chrysalis and, and lay eggs in there, but, uh, unless you really know what you're doing, uh, you know, if you can gently pull that silk away from, from what it's connecting, you know, what it's attached to very gently, uh, without harming the chrysalis, I would say you're better off to leave it at that point. Okay. Uh, I mean, you can move it, you can move it. And I, and I would not, I, I would not hesitate to move it. But I've moved a lot of them before inside the house. Like if, if uh, you know, it made its chrysalis on the side of, a, of my glass container, you know, I might move it and hang it. Uh, and, and there are ways, you know, you can do that. But if you find one outside, unless you, it's on a leaf that you can cut it, cut the leaf, the actual leaf, and bring it in. If it's on a solid surface like that fountain, I would be very hesitant Okay. to move it. Unless you've done it before and know what you're doing. Sure.
0: Would it be worthwhile to put, like, some netting around it to try to protect it while it's in the chrysalis form?
1: You could. I mean, that that would protect it from the wasps that I was talking about.
0: Hmm. One of the things you mentioned in your book is that there are a few other caterpillars and butterflies that, look like monarchs, but they're not monarchs. Do you want to walk us through the varieties that can sometimes fool us into thinking they're monarchs, but they're actually not?
1: The one that most often gets mistaken for the monarch is the viceroy. And the viceroy is a little bit smaller than the the monarch. It has the exact same colors, It has white polka dots on it, just like the monarch, but if you look at the pattern of the veining on its wings, you'll notice that on the viceroy, it has that curved, solid line across the bottom, and we call it a smile. (laughs) And um, when you see them side by side, you very definitely can tell the difference. If you come across a viceroy out in the wild and you don't have anything to compare it to, one thing you can look at, like I said, it's a little bit smaller. It's notably smaller than than the monarch. but it, it's also in the way that it flies. it's Its movements are much quicker and it's it's just more flighty, uh, whereas the monarch tends to be a little more graceful and floaty than than the viceroy is. That's one. that's the one that's most commonly mistaken. Second, and maybe almost as often, depending on if you live in the south or the north, in the south, they have one that's very, very similar, the Queen, and it's the same size as the Monarch. It has the same colorations, but the veining is much more pale, Um, and you've got the white spots are in a little different place. That looks very, very much like the Monarch.
0: When I saw that picture of the queen butterfly, which I have not seen up here in Minnesota, but to me, it just really reminded me of the coloring on a fawn.
1: Yes. Yes, that's a that's a really good analogy. It does. The queen has a little softer look to it as far as the coloration and the veining. It's just, there's not as much contrast. Hmm.
0: So that one is a southern butterfly. Yes. Okay. It's
1: generally in the South, you know, in Florida, Southwestern U.S. I've seen them in Texas. Okay. In fact, that's the only place I've been that I've seen them.
0: Okay.
1: And then there's a third one, and this one is in the U.S. is found in Southern Texas and Southern Florida, and it's the soldier, and it very much looks like the monarch, too. It's got, you know, the same coloring, same veining. Um, but one way you can tell, like you find it in the caterpillar stage, both the queen and the soldier have three sets of filaments or tentacles. You know, the monarch has a set at the front of the caterpillar and a set a smaller set at the back. But the queen and the soldier have three sets. There'll be another set in the middle.
0: Yes, in their caterpillar stage they look a little spooky, a little more intimidating than the friendly caterpillar of right. the monarch. Right. One caterpillar that I was really pleased to see you include, because this question has come up quite a bit in the listener community, is you show an image of the eastern black swallowtail caterpillar. It looks very similar to a monarch caterpillar. Tell us the distinguishing features, though, because if you know what you're looking for, you'll be able to tell the difference.
1: Well, the easiest way, even outside of their appearance, is the plant that you're going to find them on. You will only find monarchs on milkweed because that's the only plant they use to eat. If you find a caterpillar on dill, parsley, queen anne's lace, carrots, any of those type of plants is 99.9% sure that it's going to be an eastern black swallow or some type of swallowtail caterpillar. And if you look at the caterpillar side by side, the monarchs markings are more striped. Whereas the Eastern Black Swallowtail Caterpillar, they're, they're in a stripe formation, but the stripe is alternating yellow and black on a green background. Okay, that's very helpful. Once, once, you've, once you've seen them side by side, then you, you'll be able to tell them apart, no question. But, but I would say that the biggest way to tell the difference is because of what plant you find them on.
0: And we go right back to habitat again and then appreciating that there really is a plant that these have kind of co-evolved in a sense, right? Right.
1: Hmm. That's exactly right.
0: I want to save the section of your book that talks about this miraculous migration to the end of our conversation because you had a chance to actually go to Mexico to the sanctuary where these monarchs ultimately make their little trip to every year. And there was one little section of your book that really caught my attention. And I thought you did such a wonderful job of explaining this. It's on page 48. And the heading just simply says pesticides. But I loved how you explained this because I run into this over and over again as I talk to gardeners about whether or not they're organic or talk to non-gardeners about the way so many organic gardeners view pesticides, the lens that we see pesticides and herbicides through. But this explanation that you provide here, I thought was so clear, just very simply laid out. I'd love to have you read starting at the very top all the way through to the end of that third paragraph there. I just thought you did a great job of just making the case for how to see pesticides and herbicides.
1: First of all, we need to define what a pesticide is. You'll see this term used at times in context that might make you think, don't they mean herbicide? The Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, of the United Nations defines pesticide as any substance or mixture of substances intended for preventing, destroying, or controlling any pest, including vectors of human or animal disease, unwanted species of plants or animals causing harm during or otherwise interfering with the production, processing, storage, transport, or marketing of food, agricultural commodities, wood and wood products, or animal feedstuffs, or which may be administered to animals for the control of insects, arachnids, or other pests in or on their bodies. The term includes substances intended for use as a plant growth regulator, defoliant, desiccant, or agent for thinning fruit, or preventing the premature fall of fruit, and substances applied to crops either before or after harvest to protect the commodity from deterioration during storage and transport. Whew, that's pretty much all-inclusive. So for the most part, I'll be using the term pesticide to refer to any chemical means of controlling plants, animals, or insects.
0: Hmm. Do you run into that a lot as well? Do you have gardeners that ask you this question, like, why don't you say herbicide or why do you say pesticide when you're talking about controlling plants? Do you get into that debate a lot with people?
1: Um, It is confusing to people. And I have had people say to me, you know, like I said in the book, "Don't, don't you mean herbicide? And I have to explain to them that, you know, the powers that be consider all of those things as a pesticide. And then once they understand that, then, then it's not a problem. But, yeah, it can be confusing. You know, we, we think of, I mean, because either an herbicide or a pesticide, if you want to look at them as separate things, can be harmful, you know, to any living thing. Um, but just I think they probably define pesticide that way just to, uh, you know, lump them all together just for, for simplicity's sake. And it works. But, you know, it, it really does work when you're trying to explain it.
0: Well, I'd love for you to share the last paragraphs that are in this section, because this is the point where you start to touch on this topic of the correlation between what's going on with the monarch and other pollinators, for that matter, and the pesticide use.
1: Do we see a correlation between the introduction of the first genetically engineered crop and the decline in the monarch population? Though it was never the intent of the makers of glyphosate products to do something that would so profoundly affect the monarch butterfly, among other pollinators, affect them, it did. If you take away a large portion of a population's only food source for their young, their numbers will decline. Less milkweed, fewer monarchs. It would be easy to just place the blame of the monarch's decline entirely on agricultural pesticide use, and it's indisputable that it's had a profound effect on them. On the other hand, you can hardly fault the agricultural community for their desire to raise more productive crops more efficiently. This is just one part of the issue, albeit a large one. Surely, compromise must be possible. And you know, I want to say, I want to add something there that when when I get into this discussion about the, the farmer's use of these chemicals, we as consumers and backyard gardeners have a big responsibility too. We can go to the store we can buy those, you know, similar pesticides and use them. And there are more of us than there are of them. We are having a large effect on the monarchs as well and, and other pollinators just by the use of these things in our backyard. We, we, don't, we need to take responsibility for that as well.
0: That's a great point, too, because it really speaks to the power that we have to help the monarchs as well. I mean, not only harm them, but also help them. This is where planting diverse groupings of plants instead of going to monocultures or only having a handful of plant material in your landscape is important. But also incorporating things like milkweed, which I think it's important to point out means more than just one plant. When we talk about milkweed, we're really talking about a variety of different plant options. There are a lot of plant options in the milkweed family.
1: Yeah, there are. And I, and that's what's so surprising to people. In my own garden, I have five different kinds, and you know, we always recommend that you grow the milkweed that is native to your area. And in my book, I do have a chart for that that tells all of the different milkweeds that grow in the US and Canada. And so you can you can look and see what ones you're supposed to be growing. But I have five different kinds that I grow. And when I show people my whorled milkweed, which is Asclepias verticillata, they look at me and they're like, that's milkweed? Because it doesn't look like the milkweed they're used to seeing. It doesn't look like common milkweed with fat leaves. It has extremely narrow leaves. I would say probably an eighth to a quarter inch wide. You know, I mean, that's tiny. It looks very ferny and airy. And I find uh, monarchs on that all the time in my garden. I think when people realize that they don't just have to grow one kind of milkweed, they can grow several. And what you said, too, about the one plant, uh, you you really, you can't do one plant. You know, it's it's good if you can grow several different kinds. If you can't grow something, you know, for heaven's sake, just grow it. but scattered around your garden, you know, don't, don't like rope off one section and say, okay, I'm going to have my milkweed over here. Uh, don't find it, but you're going to bring them in more if you have it scattered throughout your garden and not put it in just one spot.
0: So think of using it more as if you're planting a cottage garden. So you're have, you're distributing right. it, you're spacing it out. You've got little pockets of it here and there, because that's really what will appeal most to the monarchs.
1: It is. And, you know, and here's the other thing I want to say about growing milkweed, too. Um, absolutely. If we don't have milkweed, you're, you know, we're not going to have monarchs, but it's also important to grow the nectar plants. And I, and I always tell people, you know, I love it that you're growing milkweed, but you have plenty of other nectar, blooming nectar plants for the monarch because the adults need that. You know, they, they don't make use of milkweed. The adults don't, um, unless it's blooming. Or they're wanting to lay eggs on it. Uh, they need the nectar from the other flowers. So if you grow a lot of flowers along with your milkweed, then you're going to have a better chance of bringing those monarchs into your garden. Plus, the other thing with the nectar plants is when it comes time for migration, like now, uh, pay attention to what blooms at this time of the year because they, the migration has started. They've, they've they're leaving Canada now, and they're coming down our way. They've probably, I don't know if they've seen roosts up your way, Jennifer, or not, but I would bet that they have, uh, you know, because they've started going down on their trip to uh, Mexico. Because you're pretty far north up there.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but the plants that they make use of on the way down there, if they don't arrive in Mexico as a healthy monarch, then the chances of them surviving the winter down there are going to be less. And that's the basis for the next year's population. So we need to be growing plants that are blooming late in the year, like goldenrod, ironweed, asters, all of those kinds of things, and even annuals like zinnias and cosmos. They'll make use of that nectar and store that. They need it not only for the journey, to fuel the journey, but they'll store that within their bodies so that they can feed on that during the winter. They often arrive in Mexico weighing more than they did when they left from the north, which just blows my mind. I, oh. You would think they'd be so skinny by the time they yeah. got down there, but that's crazy. But they don't; they're not. Hmm. As long as they can find nectar, good nectar sources, so that's okay. really important to grow those too.
0: I want people to be thinking about. The terminology here, because when you say adult, you're talking about the butterfly, the, the end result that right. everybody loves so much. So if you want to help right. the butterflies, you need to have nectar plants. If you want to help them start their journey in this world from egg to through chrysalis, you need to have milkweed because that's how you get right. the butterflies. That's how you get the adult butterflies. So that's important. You know, two takeaways that I would love for people to leave this episode with. One is understanding the fact that they can plant a variety of milkweed. I wish that we wouldn't just use one term that, or, or we would say things like plant you know, any number of these milkweed varieties instead of just using the term milkweed, because I think it's really narrowed people's perceptions of what they need to plant. And then secondly, I wish the word weed was not in the title for this for this plant. And you mentioned that in your book. It's really unfortunate that the word weed is attached to this particular plant.
1: Yeah, you make a good point about growing different kinds of milkweed. That We call it all milkweed, um, but there are so many. And, you know, the flowers all have the same form, but the plants can look so different. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is, too, that I find in my own garden, and I hear other people that are into monarchs say the same thing. One summer, they might make more use of common milkweed, and the next summer, it might be swamp milkweed. So I guess they have... Taste preferences, just like we do, <laughs> you know. It just seems like um, it can vary as to which plants they use. So if you have a variety of milkweeds, you know, you're gonna you're gonna draw more in. You just are. I was just gonna say it, it yeah. reminds
0: me of my dad when I was growing up because he loves cantaloupe, but some years are better cantaloupe years than others, you know. And then we'd move over to watermelon. Maybe that year it was a good watermelon year.
1: Well, or or it might be the quality of the plant too. You know, like one year, maybe, you know, like, you, like your dad, you know, it wasn't a good cantaloupe year. <laughs> yeah. You know, one type of milkweed may grow better one year than another too. I mean, I monarchs know more than we do, for sure, mm-hmm. about feeding their young and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, it is unfortunate that weed is in the name because yes. some people will say, well, you know, it's a weed. And it's like, no, it really isn't. It's a native wildflower, plain and simple. It just is.
0: Yes, it is. And let's talk about, there are are two things I'd love to have you go into a little more detail on. One is, you offer a word of caution here when you're planting milkweed, all the different varieties, because of the sap. I'd love to have you talk about that a little bit. And then let's walk through the different milkweeds that are available to people and maybe pretend like you're a marketer. Like, why would they want to plant this particular milkweed? What are the outstanding features? How can they incorporate it into their garden, not only for the purpose of helping the monarch caterpillars, but also for enhancing the beauty of their garden?
1: Okay. Yeah, with the, with the milky sap that the milkweed is known for, um, it is a a latex sap. So if you're allergic to latex, you're going to want to be really careful when you handle milkweed because you really can't handle the plant without it cracking and, and getting some of that, that milky sap on you. Now, I don't have a problem with it. I get it on my skin. It doesn't burn. It doesn't do anything. I have, I have no reaction whatsoever, but everybody else is, you know, other people are not as fortunate. So you need to be careful because it is toxic. Um, it's what protects the monarch from its predators because they can sequester that toxin inside their bodies, but it doesn't harm them, but it, it can make their, like, say, birds. Uh, most birds will not touch a monarch, either caterpillar or a butterfly, because that sap that has become incorporated into their body when they eat that milkweed makes them not taste very good. They can sometimes vomit even. But uh, if you do get it on your skin, you want to go ahead and wash it. Make sure you do not touch your eyes because if you get that milkweed sap in your eyes, it actually can cause blindness if you don't get it rinsed out. And uh, it's just just good to be careful when you're handling the, mon- or the milkweed plants. And there are a number of other plants that have toxic sap like that too, like the euphorbias do. Um, but it can be really, really irritating. I know Sarah, I mentioned Sarah Dykman before in her presentation to kids. She says to them, okay, guys, listen up. This is really important. Milkweed is not milk. Okay. (laughs) You know, she just stresses to the kids that, you know, it might look like that. Don't be tempted to taste it. You know, just because the caterpillar eats it doesn't mean that you should. And, uh, you know, it's just best to make sure you wash your hands after you've handled it. Um, if you do have a latex allergy, you might want to just make sure you've got gloves on. You know, I don't want to scare people. I don't want them to not grow it because of this. It's, you know, it's not something that's difficult to prevent problems with. So, uh, but, you know, you just, you need to know that about it.
0: Yeah. Well, And it's not like you're out there handling it every day. This is like any other plant in your garden. You plant it and you move on. Right. So walk us through the different milkweed varieties that are available. Put your marketing hat on. What would be appealing about each of these to gardeners? And I have to say, the bloom is a beautiful bloom. And a lot of these have, you know, these star-shaped petals. They almost look like alliums sometimes and in their appearance, how they cluster together. Highlight some of the wonderful aspects of these different varieties that are available for people.
1: Well, you know, most people are really familiar with the common milkweed. And that's the one that has the, uh, like, ball-shaped cluster of blooms at the top. And if you've ever gotten close to that when it's in bloom, oh my goodness, the fragrance that comes from that is amazing. Amazing. I know the first time I noticed it, I was just working out in my garden, and it was towards evening. Sometimes plants will, will be more fragrant towards evening. But that one, I was working out in my garden, and I thought, what oh, is that wonderful smell? And all of a sudden, I just looked over, and the milkweed, the common milkweed, was in full bloom. And I went over to it, and it was some milkweed. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. Nobody had ever told me that it, it's a very, very fragrant plant, and that it's such a beautiful fragrance. And in fact, there is such a thing as milkweed honey because a lot of pollinators make use of these milkweed flowers. Uh gather oh, the nectar and yeah, and I have some. I actually have some milkweed honey. It's not produced in the US. Mine came from Hungary. Hopefully someday we'll have enough milkweed fields that we can have milkweed honey in abundance here. <laughs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, that'd be cool. Um Yeah. But you know, they each have their bloom period, which is kind of nice too like in my garden the common milkweed blooms first then comes the swamp milkweed and mm, about somewhere in there the whorled milkweed blooms the whorled milkweed has white little tiny white blooms Um, and then there's the butterfly weed which by the way is the 2017 perennial plant of the year that one has beautiful orange blooms Um, You know, they're just, there are so many different kinds and the blooms are so different on each of them. And like I said, there are many varieties that are native to each area of the U.S. So there's no shortage of different types of milkweed that you can grow. The problem is the availability of it. If you have a native plant nursery, that's a good place to look for Mm -hmm. some of these different varieties. Or there are some online seed sources, um, and I've named some of those in the book where you can find the seeds and grow your own. Uh, One thing you want to remember with most of these um, perennial milkweeds, which most of these are, that the seed has to have cold, moist stratification, which nature does in the winter, the freeze-thaw cycle, or even just if you don't have a lot of freezing, just that cold, wet will help the germination of the seeds. So I always tell people the best time to plant by seed is in the fall.
0: Okay, see, that's good to know.
1: Yeah, if you you go buy a, a packet of seeds in the spring, you'll have some germination, but you'll have a lot better luck with them if you plant those in the fall. Well, there's a way to artificially stratify those seeds by putting them in your refrigerator in a damp paper towel for, you know, six, eight weeks or so. You can do that too. But for me it's just you know I just try to mimic nature. If you look at the plants when they go to seed and they're dropping that seed in the fall, that's what mother nature does. That's when those seeds are falling to the ground and they stay there and then in the spring they germinate when they when at the proper time. And they've gone through that natural stratification by being out all winter. Mm. You can winter sow them too if you're if you're into that, if you You know, selling milk jugs in the winter, they, they do great that way, too. See, this
0: is great to know because for folks who have yet to get on the milkweed
1: bandwagon,
0: there's still time. There's still something that they can do.
1: Oh, definitely. Definitely.
0: I like that you point out there's a milkweed variety that's called poke milkweed. And you say it's one of the few that like to grow in the shade. So for shade gardeners, that's an option.
1: Yeah. I grew that from seed two winters ago, and this spring, um, I was checking it. I had never found a monarch on that. I, I don't have very many plants. I just have a few small plants, and I was checking it this, oh, it was probably in June, I guess, and don't you know, I mean, this is a t- we're talking a little plant. It's only probably, at this, at that point, it was probably only a foot high, and I found a monarch egg on my poke milkweed. I was so excited because it was the first time I'd ever found one on it.
0: And there's one that's, it's listed as an endangered species in Connecticut, New York, and, and Pennsylvania. But it's gorgeous. And it's called white milkweed, although it doesn't look white. It almost looks like a pale pink to me.
1: Well, and it may, but you know how some flowers, as they age, like the out when they first bloom, they might be, more pink. And then as they age, they, they fade out. And so I think that's probably the case with that one.
0: And then you also point out there's a green milkweed. That one's pretty striking. And there's antelope horns milkweed. That one is very cool.
1: Oh, I think so too. I've not seen that one in real life, but I would love to. And notice the leaves on that one. That one has skinny leaves too.
0: The leaves on that are like pencil thin, it looks like.
1: Yeah. You know, if you go by the flowers and the size of the leaves, obviously it's very different than the common milkweed that we're familiar with.
0: Yeah. The zones for the majority of them are pretty tolerant because they go from zone three to nine in general. There are a few exceptions. Two, of Mm -hmm. course, at the end here are the green milkweed and then the antelope horn's milkweed. But by and large, we should be able to grow most of these milkweeds in our gardens around the United States.
1: True, although even though it, it lists the zones, you want to check that chart in the back to, if you want to know which of those are actually native to your area. Because you know we can grow other kinds of milkweed here that maybe are not native here. I always recommend that you grow what's native to your area.
0: Okay. Do the monarchs care, or is that just to subscribe to kind of the general native R philosophy?
1: Yeah, I think the latter. You know, monarchs will make use of milkweed wherever they can find it.
0: Okay.
1: You know, they're they're not that picky. Uh, and then we can we could get into the whole tropical milkweed issue because you know tropical milkweed is not native to the U.S. And that's one of those hugely controversial issues. You know, should you grow it? Should you not? But they will use it. They will use so, it. So you know, it, yeah. Oh yeah, they'll use it. Okay, they let's, like it. let's let's
0: help people understand why is there debate around tropical milkweed. Present the con argument: why should we not use tropical milkweed? And then let's go to the pro side. But first, let's start with the con. What is the argument against using tropical milkweed?
1: Okay, there are a couple different theories about tropical milkweed. Probably the biggest thing is that in the South, where tropical milkweed can grow year-round, and we're talking, you know, south part of Florida, Texas, areas like that, where it's warm enough year-round that it doesn't get frost, you know, frost will kill it. But so if you live in an area where frost is not really a big issue, then you can grow that year-round. Well, there are also year-round populations of monarchs, say, in southern Florida, and if they stay around, um, there's a parasite called OE. It's a big, long name. I can't even begin to pronounce it, but we call it OE. And it lives on the monarchs, and it can be a problem. It can cause deformed wings. It can cause the inability to fly. Some monarchs can tolerate it better than others, but it's it's not a good thing for the monarch. And what happens is that this OE gets on a monarch's body, so let's say an adult has it, it goes to lay an egg on tropical milkweed and some of that drops off onto the leaf, onto the egg. Well, the first thing that happens then is when that egg hatches, the caterpillar eats its eggshell and if the OE has fallen off the, the mother butterfly that's laid the egg, then it has consumed that parasite so it's infected. And if you have a plant that is there year round and is constantly being used by the monarchs over and over and over the chances for OE increase. And in fact, OE is much more prevalent in those areas. So, okay. you know, you don't want to you don't want to uh, exacerbate that problem of OE by growing a plant where it's present.
0: So, you know, that's new to me. I That part of the argument I had not heard before. So the fact that this particular type of milkweed, <clears throat> this tropical milkweed, does not die back, does not have that dormant period like other milkweeds do, that's what makes it particularly problematic, at least where this, uh, what do you call it, a pathogen or... Uh-huh. It's some type of infection, yeah, and, it, and it'll just continue.
1: Right. I think, actually, that is in the book. Um, I, yeah,
0: I read about the OE, but I guess I didn't appreciate the linkage between that and the tropical milkweed. So that's what's very interesting about that for me.
1: Yeah, so that's one part of the problem. And then they also think that perhaps, and I'm not sure that I really subscribe to this or not, but, you know, there are a lot more people that know more about it than I do, <laughs> But, um, that it can delay the migration that, that, you know, as long as you have milkweed growing, they won't migrate to Mexico. And so, you know, that, that's possibly a problem too.
0: So the argument here is that because the tropical milkweed stays lush and green and continues to grow, there's little incentive for them to migrate. Or maybe it holds them back a little bit because they're like, hey, this is pretty great. We don't need to leave. The the milkweed's not dying back like the native milkweeds do. And so it maybe delays them, you know, But although there is some controversy about that. Okay, so now the pros for tropical milkweed, why people like it or why. why people say, eh, it's not a problem. What do those arguments sound like?
1: Well, you know, it's a beautiful plant. It has beautiful flowers. They're red with yellow centers. And it's easy to grow. It's readily available. You know, even in the north, as an annual, it's readily available. You can grow it from seed. Um, It's a little harder to grow it from seed up in the north because you won't get blooms until, you know, early fall. And they like it. Monarchs like it. It's got a high concentration of the toxic sap, which, you know, they they make use of the higher higher concentrations when they can because that provides more protection for them. But, you know, other than it just being more readily available and it's beautiful plant and that the monarchs like it, I mean, those are the pros. Okay. All right. If you look on page 91, it talks about the OE, and that will tell you, how that is transmitted.
0: Yeah, I was thinking of it in terms of like an STD, but for monarchs, you know, like if the mother uh, if the mother yeah. gets it, it can pass to the children, you sure. know, because they contaminate right. the leaves, that kind of a thing. Yeah. But, you know, that... It is like that. Yeah, it is like that. And so I guess I didn't appreciate that, that it ruins the habitat in a sense.
1: Yeah, because in those tropical areas, you know, even in the islands that are off the coast of Florida where they live, like Bermuda and places like that, the OE, there's a there's a chart somewhere out there that shows what the percentage of the population is infected by the OE and it's very high in those areas. We in the north we don't have as much of a problem with it because our plants all die, you know, in, in the in the fall and we start new every yes. year.
0: Yes. Mm Hmm. Well, I'm a huge Prince fan. I don't know. There are a lot of Minnesota girls who were huge Prince fans, and people often would ask him over the course of his lifetime, "Why do you stay in Minnesota? Why do you stay in Minneapolis?" Because, of course, he could have gone anywhere. You know, L.A., New York, and he's like, "No, I like it. The cold keeps the troubles out of Minnesota." You know, because everybody wants to stay away. They think it's so cold, but I love that. And the same is true for a lot of the plant issues that people face in warmer climates. We just don't have that because because it gets really cold here and that takes care of a lot of problems in the garden.
1: Well, you know, I, I encountered that here in Ohio too, because I have a small greenhouse. And so I would take my tropical plants in there for the winter. And the first couple of winters, I would keep it at about, oh sixty 60 degrees. And I had a huge problem with spider mites, especially on my brugmancias, you know, angel's trumpets. And I, had, I was constantly babbling that in the greenhouse. And then I thought, you know, what if I drop down the temperature to about 50 degrees? You know, the plants are not, it's not going to hurt the plants. They might slow down their growth or even go dormant, but that's fine. It's winter, you know. So I did that and I didn't have problems with them anymore. They just disappeared. So yeah, there is something to that. Hmm,
0: that's interesting. Well, I want yeah. to cover, uh, you You directed me over this way as well, and I and it's the last thing I want to talk about before we talk about the wonderful trip that you took last year to the sanctuary in Mexico. But I just want to make sure we touch on this because, again, it's helping people understand this whole issue of monarchs a little bit more fully here, and that is you devote a few pages to the predators. There are many predators for monarchs all the way through caterpillar stage through adulthood they're helped out because they've got this this milkweed latex that they're ingesting and that makes them not taste so fantastic but still there are predators why don't we just have you just go over this so that people can really appreciate the predators that these guys have to face throughout their lifetime and this is why it's important if you want to be part of the preservation effort to help bring them inside and get them to adulthood?
1: Probably, at least for me here, and I, it, I assume that it, it's probably the same just about anywhere. I mentioned it before, it was the tachinid fly, because when I bring in caterpillars from my garden, if I lose any, it is without a doubt, more times than not. I mean, I'm I'm talking like ninety-nine percent of the time, it's because the tachinid fly has laid eggs on it. So, you know, that one's a huge one. And you see them all the time out there. I mean, I see them in my garden. They look like housewives. They you know, they're not housewives, but they look just like them. And so that that's a major problem. And then I've also seen in my garden, I've seen the caterpillars be attacked by Spine soldier bugs—they look like stink bugs. They are a type of stink bug, and you know they—they they, what they do? They just pierce the caterpillar and suck the life out of them. <laughs> uh, spiders, spiders will will take care of you know some of the smaller ones. Um, well, not only that, you see, adult monarchs get caught in spider webs. Yes. You know, so spiders are an issue on both ends of the life cycle. Uh, wasps will lay eggs inside the um, caterpillar and the chrysalis, and ants. Ants will definitely eat the eggs. And, you know, I have to mention, too, that if you have more than one egg on one leaf and the one caterpillar comes out, hatches out of the egg before the other one, they often will go and eat the other egg. They can be cannibalistic or they can, a larger caterpillar can eat a tiny one. It happens. <laughs> so, you know, there's just so many things that, that they're up against. So now now that you've brought up the whole
0: caterpillar cannibalism thing, I have to ask, if you are bringing these caterpillars or these eggs into an environment that you've created because you want to grow them In your home, you want to give them shelter, Mm -hmm. protect them from these predators. Should you be separating them so that they don't cannibalize each other?
1: Yes. You should. That's very important. Yes. If you're going to raise more than one or two, well, even if it's two, uh, you want to, I keep them separated by size. You know, when I put the, if I bring in, say, five eggs at a time, I don't know when those eggs were laid. So I don't know when they're going to hatch out. I don't know if they're going to hatch out all in the same day or if one's going to be two days later. You know, you don't know that. So I just keep a close eye on them. Once one of them has hatched out, I will move it to another container. Because I, I just know, and I've, I've had it happen, that that little caterpillar, once he's done with uh, eating his own egg, he may, I mean, he'll start on the leaf, but if he comes across another egg, he'll eat it. Huh. So I do keep them separated. I keep them separated in separate containers according to size. If they're really tiny, you know, I can put, I can put tiny ones in with tiny ones, but I do not put tiny ones in with, say, third or fourth and star or even fifth and star caterpillars because that's just asking for trouble.
0: Okay. See, now that's great to know. and And here's why I think it's very important too is so many people are trying to create these little you know butterfly houses you know a place where they can bring these caterpillars and then you know raise them and that's fantastic and I've seen these enclosures especially in nurseries you know in greenhouses and in, in garden centers uh-huh. because they want to promote awareness which is wonderful but I was just at a nursery uh, let's see. About two weeks ago, they have a very large butterfly enclosure for the monarchs, but they're all commingled. They have, you know, the eggs. They have the chrysalis. They have the big fat, juicy caterpillars walking about, and lots of milkweed inside. But not fully appreciating this aspect of raising caterpillars.
1: Yeah, you know, that's why I don't go into detail too much in my book about raising more than one. Because, you know, if you raise one, which I think, I I think it's good for everybody to do that at least once because you see the whole process up close and personal and it means something to you then. And, And when something means to you, then you care more, you care more, you do more. Yeah. But I don't talk a lot about raising in numbers because there are so many things to consider when you do that. You know, there's the whole cleanliness of the thing. You know, when you're raising so many monarchs in an enclosure like that, there's a, you know, bacteria and things that build up. You've got to be clean. You've got to be, you know, out out in nature. You're not going to have them in such close proximity. Uh, you're not going to be dealing with all that frass, which is their poop. You know, in, in a a small area. So there are a lot of other things to consider when you start raising them in number. And I really didn't want to get into that. I mean, that's another that's another controversial subject. You know, mm-hmm. some people are like, should we be doing this? Um, but and I I won't go into that because you know I I do have mixed feelings over it and when I talk about raising a number I'm talking you know some people do five or six hundred of them and I think there are many people out there that do it and do it responsibly but just realize that if you decide to raise any number of them that there are some other considerations you know the cleanliness is part is is so super important and separating the smaller ones, the babies, you know, from the older ones. Because even when they're forming their chrysalis, you don't want another caterpillar crawling around while they're doing that. I mean, that can interrupt the process. And, Mm. you know, so there there are just a lot of things to consider if if you decide to raise them in large numbers.
0: I didn't even know about that. So I'm really glad that you've addressed this, Kylie, because this is something where I can see where people get addicted to it. I mean... I see, and I know you see, because again, we have so many friends in common on Facebook. I see the excitement. I hear the excitement. You know, people are going crazy when their caterpillars are coming out, butterflies, and they're showing pictures, and that's fantastic. But you can see where they think, oh, I need to do this more. And next thing you know, they're, they're trying to raise 5, 6, 10, 20, 40 caterpillars, not thinking uh-huh. about this very artificial environment that they're creating. Because as you pointed out, that does not happen in nature.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, there there are enough bacterial infections and things, you know, viruses that affect monarchs in those situations that, you know, you're just going to have some failures uh, at some point. You know, I've had a couple of bacterial failures of chrysalises and I didn't, you know, it wasn't a problem because it was just a one-off kind of situation. You know, one happened um, because I'm pretty careful about bumbliness here but it happens and I mean it happens out in nature too but when you have them so crowded you know like I see sometimes it it makes me cringe a little bit because you know I I don't want to judge from a picture because you don't know what that situation is but it makes you wonder it's like are they living like this crawling all over each other you know all the time um because that can't be good uh you know they just there's just so many things to consider, you know, if you're going to do it, it's not an impossible thing to do and it's not hard to do. It's just, will you do it? You know, if yeah. you start, if you, if you, I mean, we we went down to Nashville for the eclipse and I had 70 some caterpillars here and they never gave it a thought, you know, Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I have 70 some caterpillars. I have to take care of them. I'm going to be gone for four days. They, I can't leave them here. Uh, even if I could put enough milkweed in their enclosures, there it's going to be a mess. It's going to be not sanitary or healthy for them, for me to leave them like that. So I boxed them up and I took them with me. And so I stayed with uh, Barbara Wise. I think you know Barbara. Yep. And I, I stayed with her. And every day I was cleaning the milkweed cages out, you know, or containers out while we were down there. So, you know, it's a responsibility and you have to know that when you're, when you start out, it's okay to do it. I mean, I think it's okay to do it if you know what you're doing and you, you, I don't want to discourage anybody from helping. I really don't. Yeah. But we need to make sure that we're helping and not hurrying.
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, one of the things, too, this is kind of dating when we're doing this podcast, but it's right after Labor Day. Today, today the kids went back to school. And Hurricane Harvey has just happened. So that's uh, foremost on everybody's minds. But one of the images from Hurricane Harvey had to do with fire ants. And fire ants you list as a predator as well, one of the major predators. And I don't know if right. you saw this image, but after Hurricane Harvey they were showing how the fire ants down there had actually worked together and they formed these floating rafts of fire ants. That's how strong the determination to survive is among fire ants. Talk about an amazing predator, right?
1: Well, you know, um, I didn't see that, but I experienced that here when I was a kid. We had flooding in, in our little town where I grew up. And we were blown away by those ant the, ant islands. They look like just these floating islands of ants piled on top of each other. So you know, it isn't just fire ants that do that because I, I will never forget that. I kind of I kind of had forgotten about it until you mentioned that.
0: Yeah, I so I was looking <clears throat> at all these images, these terrible images of the flood on 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 Twitter, and. And then people are saying, boy, it's not enough. You have to worry about snakes and alligators. One guy came home and there was an alligator under his table. And and then that. they said, yeah, and then they said, and you have to worry about floating islands of fire ants. And if you Google Hurricane Harvey, you know, hashtag Harvey fire ants, it'll be image after image of these floating islands of fire ants. Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine encountering anything worse. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. Well, let's talk about the section of the interview that I've been looking forward to the most, and that is talking to you about your amazing experience. I'm betting probably even an almost spiritual experience for you when you went down to the sanctuary in Mexico, the place that all the monarchs migrate to. And of course, interestingly enough, this area was not discovered and made known to the world until the mid-70s when I was just a little kindergartner or first grader. So there's a part in your book where you talk about that. I'm going to pull this up here a second. Okay, here it is. It's on page 35. And Uh I'd love to have you read those first two paragraphs, or I guess it's just one paragraph on that side. And then talk about this wonderful location that you got to go
1: visit. Okay. Prior to 1975, the exact winter location of the migrating monarchs wasn't known. Yes, they went south into Mexico, but just clearer. Dr. Fred Urquhart, a zoologist from Toronto, Canada, along with his wife, Nora, devoted many years to attempting to find this out. Dr. Urquhart developed a system of applying paper tags to the monarch's wings, each with a unique identification number, tagging his first monarch in 1937. Several hundred thousand tags later, on January 9, 1975, naturalists Ken Brueger and Catalina Trail, with Dr. Urquhart's guidance, found the monarchs clustered in the Oyamel Fir Forest in the transvolcanic Belt Mountains of central Mexico. The discovery of the Monarch's overwintering location was shared with the world the following year in the August 1976 issue of National Geographic.
0: Pretty cool. It was a 40-year effort to try to figure out where that location was.
1: Well, you know, the interesting thing is, of course, the locals knew about it. You know, I mean, that, they and they didn't probably think anything of it because it happened every year. They came, you know, and nobody had ever really investigated from the U.S. or Canada to see about that. You know, it was just part of their life. They knew that they, I mean, just like it was in the north. You know, I don't know if maybe the locals down there back then didn't know where the monarchs went in the summer because they left there. You know, they didn't stay there. So maybe they didn't know exactly where they went either (laughs) until later. But um, it's such an incredible migration story because... You know, the monarchs that are in our gardens right now are the ones that will be making that epic journey. They live seven or eight months, whereas, you know, most generations earlier, like their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and great-great-grandparents only live four to six weeks. But this generation will live until next spring. They'll make that epic migration all the way to Mexico to a very specific spot, same spot every year at almost exactly the same time.
0: And they will live until next spring.
1: They will live until next spring. They don't sexually mature when they, when they um, eclose or emerge from their chrysalis here in our gardens in the North, they will not sexually mature. And that's what helps them have the strength to make that journey. If they concentrated on reproducing and all of that, that takes a lot out of them and they would probably never make it. So they fly all the way down there. They get there about the 1st of November, and they will stay in those Oymel fir trees at a very specific uh, altitude, and those trees are clustered at the tops of about 12 mountains down there. I mean, it's a small area. It's a really small area. And those trees provide protection for them. It's the right temperature. It's the right humidity. You know, it protects them for the most part against storms. You know, there have been some pretty epic bad storms that have hurt them and killed a lot of them down there. But luckily those don't happen real often. But anyway, you know, they'll stay down there clustered on those trees. They'll come out they'll fly around on sunny days, go down and get drinks out of the little streams that go through that area, and then they go back and cluster and stay there and huddle together until oh, probably March first of March, end of February, first of March, they start flying around, and then they'll take off about mid-March, mid to late March, to come back up north. And then when they reach the first milkweed, which is in the southern part of the U.S., they will lay the eggs. No, they mate. They mate before they leave Mexico. And then they'll fly north, they'll lay the eggs, and then they die. Okay. And then those eggs that are laid in the southern part of the U.S., then go through their life cycle, and as adults, then they continue further north following the emergence of the milkweed, and, and then that that generation only lives four to six weeks. They lay eggs, and then they die, and then those eggs mature to adults, and they go further north yet and do the same thing over and over until they get to the far north of their range, which is in southern Canada.
0: And then they hang out for a few months, and then the process starts all over again. It's
1: Starts all over again. Yeah, they're just busy reproducing. Uh, you know, all through their northern range all summer until that final generation and then those are the ones then they start all over again. They go back hmm. go back to Mexico. And I just I just find it incredible that they've never been there before. They don't have anybody to show them the way.
0: And they know. And so what's really interesting know. is those first generations are not making that huge long trek north. They they reproduce, they travel. They reproduce, they travel. It's that last generation that potentially has the longest trip to make. Is that right?
1: Right, right. It's the only, yes, it's the only generation that makes that trip. That full trip. You know, they, what they do, they go all the way from the far north of their range. They go, that one generation goes all the way to Mexico. They spend the winter, then they turn around and come back to the southern part of the U.S., and then they die.
0: So, if you're in those first generations, it's like you're taking connecting flights. You're leaving Mexico, and you maybe make it to Dallas, and then from Dallas, you right. go to Oklahoma. Now, after, let's say I'm a female monarch and I've laid my eggs, do I die then, or do I just keep living my life?
1: No, you die. So, I've We're both males and females. Both males and females die after about four to six weeks. That's a normal summer lifespan.
0: Okay, so it, it truly takes generations for them to reach their most northern destination, which would be a little bit right. north of. Did you say Edmonton?
1: I think Winnipeg is.
0: Winnipeg, Winnipeg
1: is. Yeah, I okay. think it's Winnipeg, but it's whatever whatever that latitude is that okay. goes through there. That's that's generally it. Although with climate, you know, with climate change that. That may change too.
0: (laughs) Interesting. So all of these generations are taking these little connecting flights kind of all the way up to Winnipeg. But then if you're a butterfly in Winnipeg at the end of summer, you're going to do a nonstop flight, essentially, all the way back to Mexico. Correct. Hmm. Very interesting. So how did this trip come together for you? I know you went down with a mutual friend, Beth stettenfield Field. Uh-huh. How, how did you plan it? How did you uh, figure out the timing of it? Uh, tell me all about it. How did it happen for you?
1: Well, that was number one thing on my bucket list was to go see the Monarchs in Mexico. And I didn't know how I was going to get to do it. You know, it's expensive. And I just... My husband doesn't really like to travel by airplane anywhere, so, you know, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to do this anyway, with or without him. (laughs) So, I thought, well, how about if I would contact some tour company and see if I could lead a trip there? So, I contacted Mexperience, which is with the Mexican Tourism Board, and they referred me to a travel company in Arizona SNS tours, and I talked with them about planning this trip. So together with them, we custom planned this trip, and they arranged the hotel and all that. They did all of that, so I didn't have to take care of any of that, but I was, a, I was able to choose the places that we went, how long we were going to be there, what what city we flew into, that kind of thing. And then Beth and her husband decided to go, and, you know, at that time, there was a lot of talk about, oh, do you really want to go to Mexico? It's so dangerous, and, you know, that kind of thing, and so, you know, I think a lot of people were very hesitant uh, when they talked about going, but, so it was just the four of us that actually went, and it was great because it was almost like a private tour, Uh, you know, if we wanted to stay longer in one place, we could, and, and we had a lot of flexibility, but... Um, if any any trip I've ever taken, and I have taken many, not one thing went wrong with that trip. It went like clockwork. It was one of the most perfect trips I've ever taken. And, you know, we went to two two sanctuaries. We went to El Rosario, which is the largest one and the most well-known. And then we went to Sierra Chincua, which is another one that's not too far from el rosario but it's very different there the atmosphere or the location is very different one is a little a little bit higher up and a little more open and so we got to have you know two kind of different experiences yet the habitat actually in the in the forest where the monarchs were was very very similar Hmm. but you know when when we went up that first day at el rosario we took horses because it's pretty steep and you can only take the horses up so far because they don't want to disturb the habitat of the monarch so we got off the horses and then we walked the rest of the way and when we got off the horses there was like this clearing and all of a sudden we it was a nice sunny day but all of a sudden we just kind of looked over to the right and imagine if you're standing in a river but the river is above you around you and it's it consists of not water but monarchs. They were streaming down out of that mountain all around us and it was overwhelmingly an, an emotional experience for me. I cried. Yeah. I you know, it took I I thought I would cry when I got back into the forest and I saw all those monarchs hanging there in clusters. I thought that's what would do it. But it wasn't. I was a mess even before we got back there. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I, I looked at the guide. We had, You have to have a local guide to go in there. You can't just go. And I looked at our guide and I said, as, as the tears were coming down my face, you know, I, I said, do you see many people cry? Do many people do this? And he said, I see it all the time.
0: Hmm. Yeah, pretty incredible. I remember uh, when you posted uh, pictures of your trip, Bree Arthur the author of The Foodscape Revolution had had mm-hmm. said, you know, she thought it was breathtaking. And all you said was, it really was. I cried. And I thought, oh my gosh, what an amazing experience for you. Kind of a capstone to this whole experience of loving the butterfly for 11 years, a decade, and then getting to see them. I mean, pretty special. Well,
1: Jennifer, you know, the other thing was when we were down in the forest, or up in the forest, I should say, and I was looking up at all these monarchs, and all of a sudden it hit me that the butterflies that I raised, the ones that were born in my garden, very probably were up there in those clusters. Mm -hmm. You think about that. I don't even know how to explain how that made me feel. You know, it's like, wow, I'm, I'm actually a part of this in a way. You know, part of this thing that I'm seeing. It came from as far north as, they came from as far north as Canada and very likely some of them that grew up in my garden or in my house are perched up there in those trees.
0: Yeah, it's pretty awe-inspiring. And when you think about the links that you had to go to to get there, much less the links they had to go to, I mean, it's not exactly an easy destination to reach.
1: No, no, it isn't. And, you know, there are all kinds of things that they have to endure on the way there, mostly weather. You know, that's a big factor. And then and even cars. You know a friend of mine, and I'm not going to say her name because she felt so horrible, but she told me um she was in she's in Texas, and she was on the freeway driving, and you know you're going pretty fast, and all of a sudden, in front of her car, it was you know a flock or a kaleidoscope is what uh, they're often called a kaleidoscope of monarch butterflies crossed in front of her, and they were just ding 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 hit her car. Yep. and she said she just was so upset because it was like, oh my gosh, they almost made it, you know. But these are things; these are things that they encounter, you know, along the way. So it is pretty amazing that they that yeah. they make it.
0: It it is amazing. I, you know, one thing I was struck by, you took a picture of the rules if you're going into one of these sanctuaries and it says Uh it's just a big sign that they had and it says, remain silent while you stay in the sanctuary. The maximum time to stay in the sanctuary is 18 minutes. Let others have this experience without altering the monarch's hibernation. Respect the permitted distance from the colony do not disturb, touch, don't have any contact with them. Don't take photography with a flash. Do not litter and do not smoke.
1: The locals yeah.
0: really recognize the the sacredness of this area for these monarchs, don't they?
1: They do, and in November when they return, you know, it's around the time of the day that they celebrate Day of the Dead. And the Mexican people in that area believe that when the monarchs come back, that those are the souls of their departed loved ones. And there are huge celebrations for that. And, you know, the other thing is that they also recognize that this is one huge way for them to make a living. And that might sound, you know, they're commercializing it, but they're, they're, that's a very poor community. And so they take good care of those monarchs. Um, I mean, it could be better. There are some issues there, too. But um, they know that those monarchs are helping them to live, too. So it's kind of a mutual relationship. You know, we help the monarchs, they help us kind Mm -hmm. of thing. But um,
0: You mentioned this in passing, and I want to make sure we highlight it because I don't know if people caught this or not. But when I look at your pictures, it's very apparent and that is the trees that these monarchs are so thrilled with when they get to Mexico. We're not talking maples. We're not talking oak trees. These are evergreens. They like the evergreens right. down there. What kind of trees are these? What kind of fir trees are these? And why fir trees? It's just not something I associate with monarchs.
1: Um, It's the OML firs, and... I don't know if there's anything about the tree itself other than uh, it provides a protective habitat when, you know, in these forests of these fir trees. Plus, the, the fir trees, they also need a particular habitat to grow. So, they only grow at a certain altitude, and that altitude is the same as what the monarchs need in order to make it through the winter. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, different plants grow in different environments. It's the same way with these trees. So these trees just happen to like the same environment that the monarch needs to survive the winter.
0: Fascinating. The other thing I'm struck by is how your images of these butterflies, these monarchs, on these trees reminds me of if I had my Christmas party, and the only thing I could decorate my tree with was monarch butterflies. That's what these Uh trees look like because the branches are hanging down. So it's like the branches of a Christmas tree. And then imagine if you put 20 ornaments that were like monarch butterfly ornaments and hung them all on this one branch. They are clustered on these branches of these fir trees. It's pretty incredible.
1: Yeah, you know, they get warmth from the trees. They'll actually cluster on the trunks of the trees, too, because they they get warmth from the trees that way. But, you know, a monarch butterfly weighs about as much as a paperclip. So if you can imagine how many monarchs it takes to bend those branches down, and they actually have broken branches from the (laughs) weight. There are so many clustered on them. Wow. Crazy.
0: Yeah, it really is. The pictures are pretty darn special. If you could crystallize that trip into three words as you look back on that entire experience, what would you say?
1: Overwhelming, spiritual, awe-inspiring. There really aren't any words. It's kind of like when we saw the eclipse, the total eclipse a a couple weeks ago. I wasn't expecting to to have to feel the emotion that I did when I looked at, I took my glasses off and I looked up in that sky and I saw that total eclipse. I don't know what I expected, but I wasn't expecting the emotional reaction. I mean, again, at that, seeing that in that sky, I felt like crying. I kind of held it back. There were other people around and I just kind of didn't. And now I kind of wish I would have just cried, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but you know, it was just so amazing. I mean, you just, you see pictures of it, but to see it in real life, it's unlike anything else. And I, as I was watching, looking at that eclipse, I was taken back to those forests in Mexico in March. I immediately thought of that same thing because it was a similar feeling. You know, it was just like, this is something bigger than ourselves, Yeah. you know? and, And I'm actually being granted a viewing of it. You know, I felt really honored and, um, very, very fortunate to be able to see that.
0: Yeah, very elemental, both of those experiences. hmm Yeah. I'm not going to ruin the end of your story, because your this book starts out with a story of you're going to the plane crash site in Shanksville, and your mom showing you this, this monarch butterfly. And then there's more to this story. But I have to just say, because I, I got to see you at the Garden Bloggers' playing, and I got to chat with your mom quite a bit, but I love that your mom is part of your story, of of your introduction to this wonderful relationship you've started with the monarch butterfly, leading to your book about the monarch butterfly. But your mom is is quite the gal and you do quite a bit with her. You're very close to your mom.
1: Yeah, we travel a lot together, and she is still quite the gardener. Uh, in fact, you know, we kind of want to sit on her sometimes because <laughs> she she does she just does too much. We tell her all the time, and she just ignores us. But <laughs> that's okay. Um, but uh, we've had some wonderful trips and experiences together, and hopefully, there, we'll have a lot more.
0: Yeah. Well, that has to be, I guess, also a another sweet element to this, to your story about the monarch is that your mom played a role in that.
1: Yeah. And she has that butterfly. She has it mounted in a little display cube, of you course know, that she started does. the whole thing. And yeah, <laughs> that would be mom. But, you know, she's played a part, too, in the uh, raising of the children's garden in Van Wert, Ohio, is there because of her idea and they have a butterfly house there. And every summer, they raise monarch butterflies in there. So, you know, she's, she's played a part in it for sure.
0: Well, why don't we close by having you share with us how people can get a hold of you, where they can buy your book, and then anything else you'd like to
1: share. Okay, you can find me. Probably the easiest way to get in touch with me is either through email at KylieBomley.com. At gmail.com or through Facebook. I'm on Facebook a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you can, that's probably the best place to find me. And then, of course, my blog, ourlittleacre.com, which I've been a little lax in posting there, but you know, good intentions to post more often. So uh, those are the ways you can get a hold of me. Mm-hmm. And if, if there's anything I can just say to people about if they really desire to help the monarch, and I hope they will, is to really consider what your actions are. And one of, one of the biggest things you can do to help them and the rest of not just other pollinators, but the whole environment is to consider the things that you do in, in your garden. Consider your actions because, you know, everything that you do has consequences and they might be good or they might be bad, but just you know, think about it. Think about it before you do it. And and hopefully you'll do things to help and not hurt.
0: Well, that's great advice to end on, Kylie. I can't thank you enough for sharing your wonderful book. It's called The Monarch, Saving Our Most Beloved Butterfly. This has been a true treat. And I especially love the fact that I got to talk to you about your trip, your amazing trip down to the sanctuaries in Mexico. That was very special.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Jennifer. You know, I really love to help the monarch, talk about the monarch um, and gardening in general. And I'm happy that I got to meet you this summer and hopefully I'll see you again somewhere along the gardening trail. But I really do appreciate you having me on your podcast.
0: Well, thank you very much. This was a true pleasure. Well, that's it for our show today featuring the monarch, saving our most loved butterfly with Kylie Bomley. Don't you feel like you have a better understanding on the subject of monarchs? I remember feeling that exact way when I got off the phone with Kylie, just like I felt so much more confident about talking about monarchs and how to help them. Anyway, I hope this episode helps you better understand how you can help monarchs, and all pollinators, for that matter, but specifically when it comes to monarchs. Planting milkweed, and then of course by providing nectar plants. These are just simple pro-pollinator choices that you have complete control over when it comes to your garden. Anyway, once more, a big thank you to Kylie for sharing her lovely book with us, The Monarch Saving Our Most Loved Butterfly. I especially appreciated the personal connections and the stories that Kylie shared with us. And It's her special connection with the monarch that makes her book and her work so very wonderful and inspiring. I want to thank my team over at Podfly Productions, my editor and project manager, Eric Begay, and my copywriter, Ayn Kadina. Just a reminder, I'll have all of the generous information that I shared on the show today over at my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number 6 FTMAma.com and then just click on podcast and today's show will be right there. And don't forget, I'd love to have you join the listener community for the show over in Facebook. Just type in Still Growing Podcast Group the next time you're in Facebook and then request to join. I'd love to meet you in the group. I'd like to thank the women who make up my listener advisory board, Beth Engel, Beth Gardens in Illinois, she works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm and one of the finest companies in horticultural service. And Beth is also a board member of the PPA, the Perennial Plant Association. Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Von Atchen, Patricia Chandler-Newport, Patricia is the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager over at American Beauty's Native Plants. And she was featured back in episode 553, where we talked all about incorporating more native plants into your garden. I leave you today with this question. How do you plan to help monarchs and other pollinators in your garden next year? Hopefully, you're open to planting milkweed and maybe a few different varieties of milkweed for the monarch caterpillars. And of course, incorporating more and more nectar plants for the adult butterflies and for all pollinators. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.